Brothers of the plow, the power is with you. The world in expectation waits for action prompt and true. Oppression stalks abroad, monopolies abound. Their giant hands already clutch the tillers of the ground. Awake then, awake, the great world must be fed. And heaven gives the power to the hand that holds the bread. Yes, brothers of the plow, the people must Hello be fed. and welcome to the American Writers 100 Page. Pages at a Time podcast, and in this episode, I'll begin looking at The Gilded Age by uh, Mark Twain and by, what's the other guy's name? Warner. Um, let me make sure I get his name correct here. I wrote it down. Um, there it is, Charles Dudley Warner. Sorry for the, the little break there. Um, very forgettable writer, but he did work with Mark Twain on this novel, which I think is quite good. I, I think this is a, a, you know, it's, I mean, I, I think most people know about this book because the name of the era, the Gilded Age, comes from this book. But then I don't think it's very often read these days. It's not like, you know, in the top of the Mark Twain canon. Um, I'm sure people who really study Mark Twain read it and, and you know, it's maybe popular enough because Mark Twain's so popular, but you know, I haven't heard that much conversation about the Gilded Age compared to his other books, obviously like his greats, like, like Huck Finn and, and Adventures of Tom Sawyer and, and his travelogues and things like that. But, but I think this one's worth reading and, and I actually kind of enjoyed it. I, I think um, I'm not quite through with it. I've read it years ago and at that time I, I just kind of zipped through it. And didn't uh, pay too much attention to it, but but taking a closer look at it has been been pretty rewarding, I think. Um, now, the introduction here, um, the explanation here um, is basically they read it because they want to, want to read it. The story behind the scenes is that apparently they were both kind of talking about how what horrible novels their their wives read. So they're like, we're going to write a better novel, and, but in doing so, they often uh, you know, copy or plagiarize from tropes in popular novels of the time. So, you know, we most of us don't read those popular novels from the time, but but they did. And they, you know, like the the kid with the uncertain ancestry, right? The rumors about that or like like romance and real estate dealings and, and little petty like um, con artists, that kind of stuff, which is such a big part of this book, were, were common in literature at the time, but but Mark Twain and Warner wanted to write a better one. Now, they say in the introduction that every chapter bears the mark of the two writers. Now, apparently that's not true. So there's scarcely a chapter that does not bear the the, the two writers of the book, the mark, and the marks of the two writers of the book. Apparently that's not true. Apparently, like the first 10 or 11 chapters are written by Twain. Basically, the stuff about the Hawkins family. Um, which is Emily Washington and then the adopted sons, Laura and um, Clay. They're the, and then the, the senior Hawkins and his wife. That, those chapters were mostly written by Mark Twain and the stuff dealing with uh, um, like this woman, Ruth, and this guy named, uh, was it Philip Sterling and, and, and some Bruce guy, or no, Harry, Harry Breerling. Um, 
don't know why I want to say Bruce, but um, they're kind of another sideline story, and they intertwine through this character of Colonel Sellers, right? Now let, let's talk about these names briefly before I forget. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of drama about Sellers' name, where they originally uh, went, and actually, Library of America kept that original spelling of the name um, of the of the Sellers' name. Um, was it Eshall's Sellers or whatever? Uh, and then someone really with that name who was involved in real estate, you know, kind of acute, you know, said, you can't use that, it'll sue you. So they changed the name. And then and then when he wrote an American Claimant, someone actually came out and, and with the name of the new, the second version of, of Sellers' name. So they had to come up with, he had to come up with a third name to use the same character. But he can't change Sellers because he's a salesman, right? Sellers sells. Hawkins, he's trying to hawk his land. I mean, he's um, the the. It's pretty you know blatant the names of these of these characters. I think um, Clay is solid, right? Laura is 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 a little more virtuous, right? Uh, and and a more sympathetic character. I don't think that name kind of conveys that. But Clay is is the solid person he's providing the he's the mortar that's holding up the family right sterling philip sterling who's a more of a heroic character has this has a name that sort of reflects that um Brearley, uh who's more of a uh, you know a little bit of a more carefree suspicious character and was hard working you know the name sort of reflects that but especially i think in in sellers and in hawkins we have names that reflect what the characters are actually doing. Um, now, the one name that's that's maybe the most ironic is Washington um, Hawkins' son, Washington Hawkins, who is a big dreamer. Uh, Washington himself was kind of a very practical guy, right? A real estate speculator of all things, right? Before he got involved in politics, he was involved in real estate in Virginia. That's before his military career and everything. So, um, and and not a dreamer quite like Washington, but, you know, the real estate connection is there to be sure. And there's a lot about real estate in this book. Um, and he fights for the Confederacy. The Hawkins family fights for the Confederacy. They go to Missouri. They're from Tennessee. They're, they're from the South, but Washington fighting for the, the Confederacy. There's some irony with that name, I suppose. But largely our characters are, you know, I think their names were, were, were well chosen on purpose by, by our authors. Um, so anyways, we got these uh, basically two stories that kind of run side by side with this Colonel Sellers as the as the glue between them. And basically the one was written more by Warner and the other was written by Twain. That was the, how we got kind of started on this. So um, let's jump into the story a little bit. I think I'm going to do something I haven't done in a while, which is kind of give you the chapter by chapter, play by play. Um, I don't know why I haven't been doing it. I think I've just been I'm not taking as good of notes <laughs> recently uh, in this podcast, so I haven't been uh, doing that as much. But but I think it's 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 good to do when you have the time to reflect on it. Maybe I should slow down a little bit. I've been thinking about that. Um, you know, yeah, you only live once, but there's no reason to to rush these things too much. I think I, I rushed the last couple of volumes a little much, and and uh, you know, with the the Heinlein stuff. It's it's been keeping me a little too often in front of the microphone and not enough time like just meditating on 
on texts. Anyways, ah, here we go. Um, chapter one is basically we're introduced to Squire Hawkins, um, and he's in Tennessee, and he's like the postmaster. Um, and he basically tells his family that we got he got this letter from Sellers, like in one version is Beriah and Eshel Sellers is the original. The Library of America uses the old printing of it, so we'll stick with that. But um, or mostly we'll just say Colonel Sellers. Uh, he basically invites them to come to Missouri, and he wants to do it and basically get involved in like Sellers were already sort of told has all these ideas and scams, whether it's like real estate speculation or. Um, basic kind of little cons, schemes, getting, eventually it's about getting federal money. I mean, that's what eventually comes down to is how do we get actual, you know, be like an Elon Musk, essentially get, become rich through federal investment in railroads and stuff. Now, Hawkins always also has the 75,000 acres in Tennessee. Now, I don't know why he can't sell it. It's maybe it's just not good agricultural land, I guess. It's 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 maybe shit land, but he's got a lot of it and he dreams of that being um, worth a lot someday. So that's going to be the foundation. That's going to be their nest egg. That's going to give them the freedom to start to to work for their wealth. But it it becomes sort of just a a burden for the family throughout their lives. It's not something they can really sell or ultimately profit from. Um, and we have in Hawkins, and in fact, his whole family, dreams. Sellers is a dreamer. And there's like a, you know, there's a con artist aspect to it, too. They're always trying to scheme uh, in different ways. But Sellers is maybe worse. He's a little kind of playing on Hawkins's desires. But Washington is the same way. The only ones who end up kind of good are the adopted children. And, and yeah, Hawkins is not a bad guy. He adopts these kids. He helps them. He's not totally selfish, but he's kind of out of touch with reality. He thinks he's smarter than he really is. He thinks he has more value. He thinks his land is worth more than it really is. And anyways, but he's the patriarch and is able to convince the family to go west to, to Missouri. And this is all before the Civil War, right? So this is like, set, it's not set quite as late as like, or as early, I mean, as, as like the adventures of Tom Sawyer, but it's set, it's set probably like in the 1850s or so. I don't know the exact date this uh, begins. And in fact, we don't get the exact year. But he, we know he dies in 1860. And he's already kind of a middle-aged man at this point. Um, now, in the second chapter, they're just tra traveling on their way to Missouri, and they run into this... Basically, it's kind of like that opening scene of Carnival where they just run into a young person with a you know, having a funeral for his mom. Um, I don't know if you saw that TV show. That's kind of how that begins. Although he's an adult in the TV show. This is a little boy. Um, his mother just died. And Hawkins, um, Silas, you know, basically adopts him at that point. Um, you know, and, and how did, why does he think he can do that? He thinks he can do it because he thinks he's wealthy, right? Now, in a way, when we think about this, 75,000 acres... It's a shitload of land. Um, we think of that as, as wealth, right? I think federal land was sold, like before the Homestead Act, federal land in like the Midwest was sold like a dollar an acre or a dollar 25 an acre. So even if you were to get like sell it at that rate, 75 um, thousand, good money. But 
I don't know how he, I, I guess, I'm not sure how he gets the land. He inherits it, I suppose, you know, back in the colonial period, probably. Some ancestor acquired all this land. And it's, it's just junk land, right? It's it's not really good agricultural land. It's not really going to, it's not valuable. And that's what, if you study the history of land speculation in America, the government sold that land cheap, but it sold it at a base rate for everyone. And in, in some places, it was worth a dollar an acre. In most places, it was worth significantly less or significantly more. Um, based on like how close they were to railroads, how close to cities, how good of farmland it was. So the government was kind of neutral in how it sold the land. Um, but speculators weren't. Speculators bought up what they could and then flipped it. Um, now, of course, that changes after the Homestead Act, where the land out in the West is, is essentially free to homesteaders and railroads and things. It's been a while since I read about this stuff, but it's a big part of American history in the antebellum period is, is, is how do you manage all that free real estate? I mean, it was a huge part of the government's budget. Tariffs and the sale of federal land was like the entirety of the U.S. budget before like income taxes. So anyways, uh, they, they adopted this boy Clay. And as I said, the name Clay, he's Clay Hawkins. He's the Clay of the Hawkins. He's going to be the foundation of the family, even though he's not of the Hawkins. He, it's like the... You know, I think this, there's supposed to be some symbolism there. All right. Um, then we have, uh, they reached the Mississippi River, the Great River. That, of course, is so such a big part of Mark Twain's mind and thoughts. Um, and the slave is very frightened of this. They have a family slave, Uncle Daniel. He doesn't become a big part of the story, unfortunately. I wish he's just kind of here as a, a bit of a racial caricature. Um, it's a little unfortunate, I suppose. If he was a fully developed character, I'd be fine with it. It's just he just drops in to be kind of a racial stereotype and to be fearful of the river. But it's something that Mark Twain's interested in, obviously, is superstitions of, of, of African-American slaves uh, in this part of the world at this time. Um, and like we see like the steamboat come you know coming and we see modernity coming in very much the themes of life on the mississippi are alive and well in this section of the book so we got a lot of themes laid out we have hawkins and sellers we have this ambition to go to the west we have a lot about land and land as a source of wealth and the source of dreams and the foundation of dreams and uh you know he's going to lead his family down a very very crazy road all in the hopes of, of becoming rich one day. But we also have the symbols of, of modernity and progress uh, here as well uh, with uh, steamboats on the Mississippi. Modernization, if we will. So the next scene, uh, the next chapter, chapter four, is a pretty dramatic scene. It's the steamboat explosion. And this is really interesting. Um, Kind of symbolically, um, basically we have the ship that the Hawkins family is on called the Boreas. And there's another steamship called the Amaranth. And, and we get a little like flashback to life on the Mississippi, which is rather pleasure. One of the first books we looked at in this series uh, where we kind of get a point of view from the, the, the steamboat pilots and the workers on there. That was, that was kind of fun. But they basically end up having kind of like a, a big dick who's got a bigger dick kind of race between the two steamboats. And that leads to an accident. And the Amaranth is like destroyed in this and 
something like 20 people die. It's like really horrific. Like 20 people die and another 80 or something. I don't have the exact numbers, but it's huge. It's like 100 people seem to have died in this. Um, whole families wiped out and broken by this. And then no one's like held accountable. It's just deemed an accident. Well, symbolically, right, it's, it's a race leading to destruction, which is what you have in the Gilded Age, where you have people chasing after wealth, chasing after privilege, chasing after influence, uh, and who, who cares what gets in the way, right? Now, importantly, in the Czech chapter, chapter five, we learn that the sellers, not the sellers, sorry, the Hawkins family adopt uh, an orphan from this uh, um explosion this accident named laura um and you know basically they just take her uh, and that's going to be like a plot point later on is like the because she's younger so she's going to be the raised as their kid but you know her lack of true parentage is going to come up later in the story um in her courtship and and how people in the town in missouri talk about her now we have this family this this kind of made family with these two adoptions and they're sitting around asking what are you going to do when you get rich and what washington says is sometimes i think i'll have a balloon and go up in the air and sometimes i think i'll have so many books and sometimes i think i have ever so many other cocks and water wheels or a machine like the one you and colonel sellers bought sometimes i think i have well somehow i don't know somehow i ain't certain maybe i'll get a steamboat first and then when they ask clay what he wants he basically says wait till I get rich and then by that time maybe I'll know what I want right so you know the fact that Clay is going to be the more rational practical um, person is is pretty clear already now it's in chapter five that they finally get to Missouri after this little voyage and it's basically what where they've been brought over by by sellers they've been conned it's it's essentially like a, a, a shanty house that they're they're living in you know overrun with an, with wild animals and things so um but he still thinks well i still have the land back west that can be the foundation and and sellers will have a plan so um but basically sellers is essentially a, a bit of a con artist that's how he's presented to us even if our characters don't quite know it yet um now we get a 10 year jump. So I guess this does place those early chapters. Maybe it must be in the, in the forties, late forties, late 1840s or something, but we got a 10 year jump. Um, and we're just told they, they make their fortune and lose it a few times, which it suggests that this is paper fortunes that these are, um, you know, just scams that went well for a while and then died out or whatever, you know, and there's different offers to buy the land, the 75,000 acres. Now, if one is like 1,500, later on he's offered like 3,000. At one point, he says he'll sell it for 15,000. And then later on, he'll sell it for 30,000. The buyer's not going to buy it at that rate, though. But he's overvaluing this land, right? So speculation, obviously, is a big part of this story. But in speculation is the overvaluing, uh, overvaluing, the boostering, right? Boosting a property to make it worth more than it seem to make it worth more than it is, right? That's part of the, the haggling of, of sales. And that's the only thing that makes speculation work is you buy it at one rate and you're going to sell it higher. That usually involves 
some sort of over and overvaluing the the property. So while the family's struggling, Silas Hawkins is a big believer in the that the family is, that the wealth of the family is secure. Um, and Clay ends up being the glue that really does prop up the family um, through his work. So when he eventually takes a job, um, he's more uh, more important part of the family. While Silas is just involved in these these schemes schemes. Um, so some of the themes of this uh, book are pretty clear, right? Racing. The race, the competition, causing destruction, right? The um, the the like the dream, I guess, the fantasy of wealth, wealth being in people's minds, not being real. Remember, this is called the Gilded Age. So, literally, you're saying like the the facade of America is looks nice but underneath it there's nothing of real value there right or a very very limited value it's just being sustained by the imagination like your gilded thing it looks like it's gold but it's not gold right it's just cheap cheap iron or whatever um and all our characters except for clay are basically there laura is i think too young we don't we don't really see her develop until until a little bit later on um now, like, for instance, the technology that's been mentioned before, uh, uh, um, Washington talked about the, the technology that sellers had, they invested in, and they finally see some of that, and it's just like an old broken clock. It's a clock that's just a piece of garbage. Uh, that, that, that shows up in the next chapter. Um, it's the same with, like, his cures, his, his magic cures. He's, like, really a snake oil salesman. As well as sellers, I mean, where he's literally saying like, oh, you got to eat turnips or whatever, or use a certain type of candle to, you know, sustain your health. And none of it works. It's all it's all bullshit. All right. Now, eventually at this time, and this is like in chapter seven or eight, Washington moves in with sellers, basically becomes his protege. And this just kind of feeds his delusions of future prosperity. Um, and Sellers is obviously talking about all these different schemes he has and plans of, of, you know, getting rich someday, you know, medicines. And that's, that's one thing he's really trying to push at this point in the story is, is, uh, like his weird kind of, uh, medical knowledge. It's some kind of popular medicine. Maybe it's, it's tied to some kind of strange quasi-religious movement of the time but it's it's there but he's getting his education he this is him going to the school he's going getting his school in from sellers and is schooled in american capitalism <coughs> which is all based on aggrandizement and inflation and speculation and and dreams that are unreasonable right i always you wear that suit every day no matter how poor you are right it's, it's like that it's like you talk a certain way you have that it's like how people talk in Deadwood, right? Everyone talks, you know, like they're trying to scam the person next to them because that's kind of what they're doing, right? There's, there's, that's part of the sale, sort of part of the sales pitch. Um, he's even introduced, though, he makes connections, right? There's networking going on here where he's introduced to this guy, Boswell, who's like a real estate agent or so. So, um, or somehow like, yeah, he's maybe a government agent for real estate out in the West. But, there's just it's just a big 
heap of, of baloney, right? And it's at this point in the story, and that this dates us at 1860, I think. We're told pretty clearly he, he dies in 1860. Uh, Hawkins dies. Now, he's even inflated his name. He's went from being Squire Hawkins because he was a postmaster to just taking on the name of of Judge. So more image and reality being um, played with here. We even get the epic dramatic death scene, which Americans love to do, where the whole family has to sit around the bed in his final moments, and he has to give his last words of advice. Um, this was actually a thing that Americans kind of valued, which is uh, it was tried to, they tried to replicate it during the Civil War with the letters. If you read, uh, um, what's her name? Drew Faust's book, uh, This Republic of Suffering, she talks about how important the deathbed moment was for fathers. And how you couldn't do this during the Civil War when you're dying on the battlefield. So letters filled in for that. And the letters would have these lessons like, son, make sure you do this. Don't, don't make this mistake. Or uh, daughter, marry a nice guy. Whatever he has to say. And, and Hawkins does that. Um, so his entire life has been a failure, right? He's got, you know, the 75,000 acres. He can't do anything with it. He can't sell it for anything but a pittance. He can't make his, you know, he loses any fortune he makes. Everything's just on paper, it seems. And his last word is like about real estate again. Again, that free real estate of America. He says like, you know, make sure you take care of the Tennessee land, the 75,000 acres, right? That's the foundation of this family's wealth. And he, he inherits it. Washington inherits the, the family fortune, as it were. But it's like, it's not really... Um, that valuable ultimately so the whole family generation to generation and and acquaintances and everyone they're associated with is essentially kind of a con artist or a dreamer and the line between them is not that big right um if anything like the foundation of their dreams which is this land is a bit of a burden for for our characters because it really keeps them from being as successful as maybe they could have been it keeps them from having to like do the grit to work like clay who knows he's not going to inherit the land actually has to work and then doing so he ends up supporting the hawkins family now this opening section with uh with the hawkins family which is like the stuff written by mark twain um sort of ends at this point there's like a, a couple chapters chapters 10 and 11 which sort of close up this phase of the story because when we pick up on their story it's going to be much more intertwined with our main narrative where it goes said you know it kind of moves to washington and it becomes about uh, america overall not just his family doing this but all of america being the same hawkins and sellers actually as american as you get it's kind of the lesson here um but there's like a subplot it's not that particularly interesting but it's like laura hawkins be, it's being revealed that she's and known to the village that she's uh, got a different parentage, like the Hawkins aren't her kid. And this isn't that big of a deal. I mean, she's adopted. Her parents died. It's not like a scandal um, that she was adopted. Um, but she was taken in as quite a young kid, so I think she didn't know this. She didn't really have full understanding of it. And she gets sort of shamed. I don't know why she's being shamed. I think... I think this is one of those aspects where I mean, Mark Twain is like making fun of tropes in literature because it seems actually kind of ridiculous that the village would scold this teenage girl for not being the natural daughter of, of the Hawkins when like adoptions happen. Like in those days, people died at young ages. Uh, 
big deal, right? Why, why is it a scandal, right? But um, there was an effort to, to Sil Silas Hawkins' benefit. They find there was an effort for him to try to find, uh, you know, uh, Laura's true father, um, you know, find some family, but it didn't go anywhere. But it, it's really weird. It's like the truth is exposed. I think thematically that's what we get here. We get the exposure of the truth. So here I'll defend this passage, even though I don't quite like it. It's a little bit weird. But I'll defend it in that what does it tell us about the point of the story if when the truth is exposed about the parentage, that it makes everyone kind of flip out and, and blanch. It's like the facade requires the fake surface of reality. The gilded requires a, a lie, right? If you say that, that that jewelry is actually, or that, that chandelier is actually cheap iron, not gold, you know, everyone's going to like, flip out about it right that that's that's why we guild things so we can you know make cheap iron look like it's like it's gold right so anyways that's the point i think with that that passage or this section um it's also like what society cares about it's so bizarre right the real the real parentage rather than her actual fairly good moral characters compared to the hawkins family it's actually lucky to avoid the Hawkins genes, which seem to be kind of corrupted. Um, we have um, now they all move because they, they they have no money, so they all basically move in to where the sellers sellers is in, in this town called Hawkeye. And um, Washington now has to work in kind of real estate speculation, and he's like trying to push another kind of miracle cure that doesn't work, like something. I think this was the turnips I mentioned before. So. Uh, with the end of the section, so this is apparently up to what Mark Twain wrote, and then um, Warner started writing from like chapter twelve to chapter third, twenty-four or twenty-three, maybe, maybe yeah, maybe it's to chapter twenty-three. Um, there may be some chapters in there written by Twain too, because we do go back to the Hawkins. Generally, I think it's Hawkins' stuff was Twain, um, but. Um, I'll say more about this next episode. So next episode will actually be like a Warren episode. It won't be quite Mark Twain, but he's an American writer, so he's going to fit into our podcast. Uh, that's fine. We could just kind of pretend Twain wrote this whole thing if we want, but that wouldn't be fair. Um, we're introduced to two characters, Philip Sterling and Harry Brealey. And we have the same kind of contrast as we do with the Hawkins extended constructed family. Sterling is hardworking, He's a Yale graduate. He's got a, like, he's, he's engaged to this woman, Ruth, back home. He's going out west to make his fortune. And he brings along this guy, Harry Breeley, who is more like the Hawkins in almost every way. He's the dreamer. He's a little, uh, um, he's a little wilder and he's not as serious. Um, but Philip um, is really there for, for a real reason. Um, so we're introduced to these characters, and they're going to be a big part of the rest of, of the story. Um, and I, I think that's, that's a good place to leave it. It's, it's about 100 pages at this point. So, um, yeah, let's, next up we're going to talk about um, Philip and Harry and their voyage and their, their they're trying to do railroad stuff, railroad 
um, investments. And they also get hooked up with sellers. So sellers also going to be using them to try to push some various railroad schemes. So sellers always got a scheme in his head. He's a, he's a, he's a little like, he's not like the Duke and the King. The Duke and the King were just straight up con artists and, and, and much more vulgar and, and lowbrow. Sellers has bigger dreams, but he's ultimately, at the end of the day, still doing like run-of-the-mill cons, like forgetting his wallet at dinner and stuff. We'll see all this stuff later on. Um, but yeah, let's leave it at that. So I'll, in the next uh, episode, I'll, I'll take us up through, I think, chapter 28 or so, um, 27 or 28. And and then we'll spend about four episodes on this this book because it's it's good. I'm enjoying this one. I'm I, I, I I've missed kind of reading stories like this. It's been a while since we've read one like this. Um, you know, I guess it it kind of makes me think of like the the Lewis stuff, the Sinclair Lewis, where we we kind of get it to the the heart of America through like characters and through settings and through um, through. These little vignettes, these little story slices of life kind of stories that that that's how novels were at the time. They are not everything was so dramatic as we get these days, or not everything was a three part series. It's just like let's even though this became a series in a way, but they're just like let's try to understand America through people's actual lived experiences. Right. And that's fun. I really like reading that stuff. So it's it's like naturalism, right? So this is kind of almost like an early naturalist. Um story in a way um anyways good stuff worth reading don't skip it if you're doing a twain read through it's worth it anyways i'll i'll see you next time with part two of my thoughts on the guild age the plow, uh, come rally once again come gather from the prairie wide the hillside and the plain not as in days of yore, with trump of battle sound, but come and make the world respect the tillers of the ground. Awake then, awake.